Becca and um, Sue said, happy Mother's Day. Um, for, for the mums out there, I, um, in youth, I get to work quite a lot with your, your children and young people over in the youth centre over there. And um, obviously it is a privilege and, and I love it, um, but it does give me a small insight into some of your lives. Um, so well done. Um, and a few hours a week at the moment is good, good for me. But if, if you are a mum here today, stepmum, foster mum, grandma, auntie or whatever, we, um, we just want to celebrate you guys and I hope someone spoils you a little bit later on. Um, but if you weren't here last week, um, Bod has started a bit of a series for us um, looking at some of the parables. And if you missed it, it's on the website, it's well worth listening to. And we came up with this little definition of what a parable is. So I think it will come up on the screen. And it says, they are world stories that help us see kingdom truth. And Jesus used stories and imagery all the time to, his, to explain his teaching to the people around him. And then Bod has also explained last week, I think there's another little thing that's going to come up, um, that Jesus used parables so that the truth would be sought, stuck, and shared. Sought in the sense um, that sometimes, you might know some of Jesus' parables were a little bit cryptic, and it just gave the opportunity for those who really wanted to find out more to seek it and find it. Um, stuck in that so many of the parables are some of the most memorable um, bits of the Bible, and, and many of us will, will already know them, um, and shared in the sense that they were just different ways to share the truth of Jesus. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had our Vision Sunday. I don't know if you were here for it. If not, it's, it's on the website. But John laid out this phrase that is kind of going to be the emphasis for us as a church for, for this next year, and hopefully some of you will know it by now, and it's this, it's for Jesus, for Nottingham, and for you. And last week, Bodders showed us a parable that highlighted the first bit of that for Jesus, and that, that as followers of Jesus, we are first and foremost to be that for him, like that's our primary role. But this week, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at a parable that highlights um, the second part of that phrase, the for Nottingham. And so before we do that, let's just watch a little clip of John explaining that at, at the Vision Sunday. Secondly, for Nottingham. Now, being a Nottingham church, this is, of course, our geographical focus. But it extends, of course, to surrounding towns and cities where many of you live and beyond that to the far reaches of the world. We're called to reach out with the love of Jesus and the message of the kingdom wherever we are. We want Nottingham to continue to be blessed and changed for the better because this church is here. To be enriched by experiencing God's love, compassion, and generosity demonstrated by us along with those in all the other churches. We want this year to grow in our demonstration of God's love to Nottingham and beyond. And so as a church this year, we want to remember that, that we're not just here for ourselves. Like we, we are here for Nottingham because geographically that's where we are right now. But actually, it's a lot more than that. Like we're, we're essentially here for the world outside of this building, not just for Nottingham, but for wherever you may be. And this topic comes at quite a good time because um, hopefully you might have heard um, of something that we've been calling um, Love Your Neighbour, where... Um, on the 17th of March to the 2nd of April, we've been encouraging the small groups here to put on amazing events and dinner parties, Easter egg hunts, all kinds of things for their, their friends, family, and neighbors, and for us as a church to try and really live out that teaching of Jesus, to love our neighbors. And for me, 
Very recently, I, I demonstrated a way of how not to do this. So um, in January, I was, I was going away with um, some of my family and um, some of that family came and had to leave their car in, in Beeston at the flats where, where I live. So usually in our car park, there are loads and loads of free parking spaces. So I basically told them to park in my space and then I just moved my car to one of the spaces that, was, that I thought was always a free space. So then we disappeared for a week um, and then came back um, to this note on my car saying, sorry, you've, you've parked in my space, can you please move your car? And, I, and to be honest, I felt a little bit bad, but I didn't too, think too much of it. I obviously moved the car. Um, and then we got back on a Sunday, so I went to church that night. And um, that evening, I was stood over there in the Connect area, and this um, lady comes up to me with a big smile on her face and says, hello, I've been meaning to introduce myself to you for ages. We live in the same block of flats, and... And I've seen you here and just haven't got around to coming and saying hello, so I just wanted to come and do that. And you might be able to see where this is going. But <laughs> we got chatting, and, um, and it was really nice just to meet one of our neighbours. I don't know if you've lived in flats before. We don't really seem to see many of them, but it was really nice just to chat with her. And then for some reason, the question came out of my mouth, what parking space is yours? And um, to this day, I have no idea why I asked that question. It's a really boring question. Um, like maybe I was just making small talk about the flats or maybe deep down inside somewhere I had this inner guilt that bubbled up into the form of this question. I, I don't know, but it, it came out. And immediately she said, well, my, mine is actually number 21, but someone's been parking in my space um, for the whole week and I have to commute a really long way to work and, and actually it's, it's been a pretty annoying. And you can imagine inside I was like, oh no. Like, what are the chances of that? Like, of all the spaces, of all the Sundays for this introduction to happen, and it's panned out like this. And I'd love to tell you that I immediately confessed and apologized for any inconvenience, <laughs> but I just really quickly changed the subject, um, moved on, and left church that night feeling pretty guilty. And um, fortunately, I have since confessed to my neighbor, um, and she is extremely forgiving and gracious, so, so it's fine. But... Maybe in hindsight, after that situation, I'm not necessarily the best person to be getting up here and inspiring us all to go and love our neighbors and get out there and do that. But at least I know I've got a little bit of room to grow in it. But as a church, we've, we've organized those two weeks of, of love your neighbor. And we talk a lot, don't we, about the importance of us being outward looking, not just being here for ourselves, for living for Jesus in the workplace and that kind of thing. And I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but for me, it's like sometimes I know these things, but it's, it's like I've convinced myself that, that I've heard it all before at some point. Or somehow over the years, I've, I've heard these things, but I don't think too much about what it would actually look like for me to live this out. And as a church, I think we do this pretty well. We, um, things like Alpha and other things like that um, are amazing. But in this parable that we're about to look at, Jesus was speaking to a large group of people, like, just like I am today, but it was a large group of individuals. And so I, I think we have to be really careful not to opt out of this kind of thing, but actually really think about what it might look for each one of us in our individual lives. And this parable comes in the book of Matthew, um, in something called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where Jesus was teaching to a large group of followers, and this little three chapters is often seen as almost a bit of a manifesto of Jesus. It's kind of where he laid out what it actually looks like to follow him and what the kingdom of God looks like. 
And if you've never read those chapters before, I'd, I'd encourage you to do it. It's great. But kind of at the beginning of this manifesto, in, in chapter five, if you've got your Bibles with you, if not, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen. So we're in Matthew chapter five, um, from verse 13. It says this. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And many of us will, will recognize this bit. Um, you might have heard of the salt and light thing before because this is one of those parables that has done its job. It's stuck. We've, we've heard it before. Songs have been written about it. You know, this little light of mine. That one, we're not going to go there. Um, but we don't have time um, this morning to look at that whole thing. Um, so we're going to focus on the second half, which is where Jesus begins it by saying, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And I don't know about you, I've probably come across those seven words loads of times in my life. And so when I read that in my Bible, I find it quite easy to just brush over them and not think too much about it. But when I read it this time around, I was actually really, really struck by what Jesus is saying here. It's not a small thing. Because if you've been to church around Christmas time before, you'd have probably heard Jesus be referred to as the light of the world, not us. And, and that's true. In, in John's gospel, one of the other books that tells us about Jesus, um, there's this little section where Jesus is telling a bunch of people about himself. And he, he says that, he says, I am the light of the world. He's not talking about his followers in that bit, he's talking about himself. But Jesus is the light of the world. He brings light and life where, wherever he goes. And that's kind of what he's saying about himself in that bit. But the crazy thing about us choosing to follow Jesus is that from the moment we choose to follow him, our identity completely shifts from that moment. But the Bible describes us as a new creation. It, it will come up on the screen again, but in 2 Corinthians, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that means if anyone has decided to follow Jesus, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. And there are all different kinds of parts to that identity. It's not always super simple, but what Jesus is saying in this parable is that when you choose to follow me, you also become the light of the world. But we don't just sign up to watch Jesus be the light of the world. He now actually wants to do it through you and through me. And now just as a quick question, um, does anyone want to have a bit of a guess? You can shout out if you want to. How many times Jesus refers to his followers as Christians? None. Good. Nothing gets past you guys. Um, it was a trick question. And Jesus never actually uses the word Christian to describe his followers. That was a name that actually came after Jesus. He referred to his followers in a number of different ways, sometimes as disciples, sometimes as, as followers. And there were lots of other images and parables that he used for this as well. And so in this little parable that we're reading, when he says, you are the light of the world, it's saying this is who we are when we choose to follow Jesus. 
This is now part of our identity. And what I'm not saying is that next time you fill out a little census or your friend asks you that classic question of, oh, are you religious? That instead of saying, oh, I'm a Christian, you respond by saying, well, I am in fact the light of the world. Um, <laughs> that, that might not go down too well. I wouldn't recommend it. But what I am saying is that as followers of Jesus, that's what he calls us. And that is in fact who we are. And that might sound quite fancy and, and you might think, well, um, I've not really been following Jesus long enough to call myself that or I don't really think I'm good enough for that. But that doesn't change the fact that each of us now are the light of the world. That's what Jesus says of his followers and, and that's what each of us get to spend the rest of our lives trying to live out more and more. For example, um, I got married two and a half years ago, just a few feet from where I'm standing. There was a little pull-out stage just there. And when Susie said to, to Rhea and I, when she said, I now declare that you are husband and wife, from that instant, I was Rhea's husband. I was just as much her husband then as I am now, no more or no less. And don't get me wrong, I'm hoping that over the last two and a half years, I've learned a few things and I'm a better husband now than I was back then. You'll have to ask Rhea, fortunately she's not here this morning, but, um, but I was from that moment, I was Rhea's husband and then now I will spend the rest of my life trying to live that out more and more, trying to be the best husband that I can be. And that's kind of like what this is saying. We won't always get it right, we might not feel like it, but from the moment that we choose to follow Jesus, we are the light of the world. And so we, we kind of need to learn to embrace what Jesus has called us to be. And then, just like me as a husband, we get to spend the rest of our lives trying to live that out more and more. We won't always get it right, but that doesn't change the fact that we are. Like you are the light of the world. Sorry, that wasn't meant to be a dramatic pause. I was just really, hungry, really thirsty, but... Um, Jesus says to his, that's to his followers, um, and then he makes it even more visual. And the next little bit, I'll just grab it here. The next little bit says, um, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So you are a town built on a hill. And lots of our English translations use words like, like built here, that's the words they would use. But the Greek word that, that we find there actually is more like placed, like that's, that's what it means. And there's this sense that the, the town has been specifically placed in that location, set in a precise way. And that, is, that was the case at the time, Jesus followers, the people listening to this would have, would have known that um, because cities were intentionally built in high places. And there's a few photos that are going to come up. Um, and these give us a bit of a taster of what Jesus would have been, would have been talking about. Israel, other than obviously a few hills, was, was generally a relatively flat place. And so you would have really seen these places, particularly with their white walls and when the lamps like shine off them at night. You could see them for miles and miles. And so in some ways, Jesus puts a picture a bit like one of these into the minds of his followers. And he says to them, and now to us, you are like a strategically placed city. Each of you has been set in a precise location. And you, you might respond to that, oh, Ollie, I'm not strategically placed. Like I just moved here because this was the only place that I could get a job 
or I came to uni here and I haven't quite figured out what to do next, so I'm, I'm still in Nottingham, or I'm just working here at the moment, I don't actually like my job, I don't want to stay here, or I've just had to move back in with my parents and I don't know what's, what's coming next, or maybe you're just like, you know what, I'm not actually where I thought I would be at this point in my life. I'm not strategically placed. But in this parable, Jesus says, no, if you're my follower, you are like a strategically placed city. You are like a lamp placed on a stand in a house and have the potential to give light to the whole room that you are in. And so with that, it doesn't actually matter where we are, where you are, or maybe even what you think of where you are. You are strategically placed and no one else can shine your light in your situation. Only you can actually do that. So the question is, if, if you don't do it, who, who will? And someone who really got this was Paul. He wrote a load of the letters in the New Testament and he actually spent a good amount of time in prison. And when we read about him in prison, we don't read about him moaning about being in prison or wishing that he was somewhere else or waiting to get out. He was often worshiping in prison. He was being the light in that place because in that moment, Paul was the only person who could do it. And I, I don't know about you, I find that challenging because we all have our own world around us, don't we? We have our own situation, our own place of work maybe, our own friends, our own family. And this is telling us you are the light of that world. And you know, there are loads of people in this church who are great at this. Um, and one of them that I know is someone called Kat, Kat Register. And Kat is a great example of someone who is committed to living this out in her situation. Um, she's a young woman, woman who's been fostering children and young people for years now. And, and it's amazing. And she is actually, for some of those young people, she is potentially the only light in their world at that time, because that's just the reality of the situation. And one girl she used to foster um, is now in the process of going back to her biological family. And Kat has been asked to be involved in the process because she is one of the most consistent people that's been in that girl's life. Like years of just loving her day in, day out. And now she's got um, a, a young boy um, with her. She, she fosters him um, and he's eight years old. And he turned to her the other day and he said, um, I think that it's God's plan that I'm, I'm in foster care. And you know, for him... Kat is the only person that can be the light of his world in this moment. Like that may change one day, like when he's much older, but at the moment, that's Kat. And that's what she's trying to do. And she's currently having her house extended so that she can make this family even bigger. And you know, that's Kat's story. That's not mine. And that's not yours. But Jesus says to us, you are intentionally and strategically placed in a specific place with specific people. You are the light of that particular world. And so if you're a student, you are the light of your halls or the lab that you work in, the library that you revise in, the people that you study with, you are that light. If you're a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare assistant, you are the light of the ward that you work in. If you're a teacher, you are the light of your classroom. If you work in an office, it's not actually just the place that you happen to work, you are the light of that office with your housemates, the people that you live with, you could give light to the whole house in the way that you live. You are the light of the fa your family. You are the light of your group of friends. 
You are the light of your world. No one else is in the same way that you are. So Jesus tells us this, that we are like a city placed on a hill. And then he basically gives us the why. Like, what is the point of this? And his answer is the next little bit. So he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He says, this is why I want you to go and live like the light of the world, to live out that identity that you have. So that we may live such extraordinary lives that people would see our good deeds, see the things that we do, and not be blown away by how great we are, but they would see your Father in heaven. They would see Jesus. And I I don't know about you, but I think somewhere along the line I must have read that as um, that they may see your your good church attendance and think, wow, they're a great Christian. They're a really nice guy. And I think that's what we do sometimes, isn't it? We we think that if we keep our head down, try to be quite polite, um, not swear too much, um, every now and then bring church up in conversation, and then we're kind of sorted, everything will be okay. But in this parable, that, that's not really the point that Jesus is making. Instead, he says to a group of people in a, in a really small part of the world who would have had probably very little to their name, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying, I want you to live your life in such a way that people see your good deeds and they don't go, you know what, he's a really nice guy or she's really friendly, as good as those things may be but they would see your life and say like, are you kidding me? Like, who is that generous? Like, who is that nice? Who is that forgiving when I really don't deserve it? Like, who goes that far out of their way for someone they don't really know? Like, I hardly even know them, but when I got ill, they brought meals over to my house or they foster and adopt children and their family just continues to grow even though they've got like three kids of their own already and their house is full. Nothing is ever too much for them. They've always got time to hear what I'm going through and support me in it. Or they befriend and love the people on our street that no one else actually really wants to befriend and love. Or they are just so different to everyone else in our office. They um, are the first to make everyone a drink, the first to take the bins out. They don't gossip about everyone else, but they're actually the first to encourage everyone. They're the first to welcome the new guy loads of other extraordinary things in our ordinary day-to-day lives. That's what it looks like. And so Jesus says to us, I want your good deeds to be extraordinary so that they will join the dots between your lifestyle and your Father in heaven. That's what he's saying. That each of us would shine so bright that people would see it and be like, what is up with them? That's not normal. They begin to join the dots. And that's what it means to live this out. And I I know that's challenging. I find that very challenging. Like, am I willing to live that way with my money, with my time, with my friends and my family, with my house even? am Am I willing to do that? Because the earliest Christians, they they got this. At the very beginning of the church, we read in the Bible about how they would often just like sell their possessions to make sure that no one was was going without. Or later in the church, um, apparently some of the earliest Christians would go down to um, the river, find abandoned children that had kind of been left there and then take them back into their own homes even though their house was full. Or there were times when plagues 
broke out in villages and towns, um, particularly in the second and third century, apparently. And at times, thousands of people would be dying each day. And the doctors at the time had no idea how to treat it other than just to stay away from it. So what that meant is people were fleeing towns because they were panicked. And I found a little article that, that talked about this, and it says this. Instead of fear and despondency, then, the earliest Christians expended themselves in works of mercy that simply dumbfounded those around them. This love took on very practical, concrete forms. In Rome, the Christians buried not just their own, but pagans who had died without funds for a proper burial. They also supplied food for 1,500 poor people on a daily basis. In Antioch in Syria, the number of destitute people being fed by the church had reached 3,000. During the plague in Alexandria, when nearly everyone else had fled, the early Christians lived there, uh, risked their lives for one another by simple deeds of washing the sick, offering water and food, and consoling the dying. So this means that while everyone else was running away, the Christians were actually running towards the problem and just doing their best to love and serve the people who were dying. And it was often at their own expense. They, some of them died doing this. And it's because of, I know that's a big example, but it's because of things like that, big and small, that within a couple of hundred years, these Christians had turned the world upside down. Like that's why, because people saw their lives, their like, ridiculous compassion, their endless generosity, and they were like, I want to know this Jesus. That's what happened. That's how the world was changed, because men and women took this seriously, this idea of being the light of the world. And so now, me and you are asked to do the same. But no, no pressure. Um, but to live out this identity of being the light of the world, regardless of whether we feel like it. To let the way that you live mean that people will see your lifestyle and they'll join the dots together and they will see their father in heaven. And no matter where you put yourself in your company or your family or where you work or, or anything like that, even if in your opinion you are at the very bottom and you have no influence, you might feel that way. If you're a follower of Jesus, he would look at you and say, you are the light of that company or you are the light of that family or you are the light of your world. You're the light of your street and you actually never know what impact you might have. And an example of that, um, of like where that happened, is a young guy who is now part of this church um, and following Jesus. And his name's Andrew. And he, he wasn't um, a Christian, but his, his friend Andy was. I know it's a little bit confusing. Andrew and Andy. Um, but the way that his mate Andy lived pointed him to Jesus. And um, <clears throat> his story's in the Changing Lives book that we mentioned earlier on. Um, and I just want to read in, in his words the effect that the way that his mate lived had on him. So it says this. Then one day I found out that my best friend Andy, who was a Christian, had been diagnosed with cancer. Andy's, Andy's diagnosis was very serious and it hit me very hard emotionally. The following months involved a lot of uncertainty and fear. I couldn't understand how Andy stayed so strong mentally, especially during the months of hard chemotherapy. Thankfully, Andy got better, and a short time after, he received the all clear. And a short time after, sorry, he received the all clear, we had a conversation that shocked me. He said that throughout his illness, he'd not been afraid of dying. I realized that it was his faith in Jesus that gave him this strength, and from that point on, I decided, regardless of what I believed, I wanted to learn more about my friend's faith. And, um, and that's exactly what he did. He came on an alpha course here after this, 
and he decided to give his life to following Jesus, all because he'd seen the life of one of his friends and he was pointed directly to Jesus. And that is actually possible for every single one of us, but for, pe- for people sorry, to see our lives and to be pointed to Jesus. And just to finish, the, the message version of this little chapter, sorry, this little passage, um, summarizes it really well. It's great, so I just want to read that. So it says, here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house, be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. And the point that this passage is making is that the brighter each one of us as individuals shine, the more people will see Jesus. That's, that's the end goal. And when one of us shines, like that's great, but actually if all of us as a church got this, we would go from being one candle on a hill to a city on a hill that can be seen for miles and miles, both in Nottingham and far beyond. And so that's why as a church, we are, we are for Nottingham but we're, we're really for the world. Like we're for every single person outside of this building and every single person that you might come into contact with in your life. We are the light of that world. 